Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, we're going to have um, the joy of our continuing our study in uh, the book of Jonah. Let, let me encourage you to turn to Jonah chapter 3. I've entitled the message today, The Greatest Revival in, in History, the history of mankind, of anything that's ever been recorded from what I can see. Jonah chapter 3. In the last number of years, we, uh, as Americans, have witnessed two invasions of Iraq. In the early 90s, uh, you'll remember that, with uh, George uh, uh, Bush Sr. and uh, the, uh, the storming uh, uh, there. And then in more recent days, uh, the, uh, the operation called Iraqi Freedom. Uh, his son in, in 2000 and, what was that, 2003. Thank you, Ken. Uh, yet I'm reminded in this operation, uh, Iraqi freedom, American soldiers died attempting to free the Iraqis from tyranny. Saddam Hussein, amazing. They found him in a, in a hole somewhere up in his home area hiding, and, uh, and he was dealt with. The American GIs died to set the Iraqis free. And we know that. It's been a long, long time in Iraq. And we, we grow weary of that. Wonder when that's going to come to an end. When will that be stable? When will they have self-governance there? And we hope and long and wait for that. We pray for our troops and their families. And we're certainly proud of them doing uh, honor to our country and their faithfulness. But did you know that there was another invasion that occurred in this land? In fact, it was thousands of years earlier. It was, uh, it was an invasion of one. You've seen the uh, United States Army ad, Army of One. There was an army of one, an invasion of one, into this very region of God's world. Uh, into, uh, we would call it, uh, northern Iraq today. In fact, it's not far from the area where Saddam is. Sain's home area was, and the invader's name was Jonah, and his mission was, uh, was to proclaim God's message of judgment. God had tapped this uh, prophet on the shoulder, as we saw in weeks gone by, this prophet who had been used successfully by God in days gone by. He was probably at the school of the prophets. He had known the blessing of God. There came a day when God said, uh, uh, Jonah, whose name means dove, I want you to go to Iraq, specifically Nineveh. And I want you to preach uh, a message of judgment, 40 days, and uh, destruction is going to fall. And Jonah, as we all know now, Jonah said, uh, I don't think so. I'm the wrong guy. I'm looking for a boat going the other way. You want me to go east? I'm going west. And that fleeing prophet was to learn again that you cannot outrun God. You cannot hide from him. And God was going to send not only a boat, the boat that he thought was his deliverance uh, from all of that, which actually became the instrument of God's spanking, sent a storm, the sailors tossed him overboard. He thought he was drowning and dying, and God sent a fish at right, just the right time. It's an amazing story. It's a wondrous miracle for sure. Uh, most people have heard of that. If they know anything about the Bible, Jonah in the whale, they'll call it. And God did that, and in the belly of this great fish, he brought this disobedient prophet uh, to repentance and restored him. And this fish, which was once the instrument of discipline, becomes now the instrument of deliverance. 
And I guess he gets a bellyache and he spits uh, this uh, prophet now restored up onto the beaches there in the Mediterranean. And that's where we find ourselves when we approach Jonah chapter 3. And now we find the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Jonah is now to go to go to Nineveh and carry out the mission that God had originally given him in delivering this message of judgment. God was going to use this once disobedient prophet to set the people free from the penalty of their sin. It was a greater thing than political freedom, as great as that is, and, and we love that as Americans, and we appreciate our men and women in uniform that fight and stand watch while we sleep and carry on our lives so that we have political freedom and we love that in this unique experiment, human history. But there's something far greater than political freedom. It's spiritual freedom. It's be free from the penalty of sin and judgment and death. God was sending this army of one, this Jonah, back uh, Uh, sending him into this great city of Nineveh that he might set them free. Well, chapter 3, you should know, is the high point of the entire book. It's not chapter 2, though most people know chapter 2 quite well with the the great fish. But it's chapter 3, where it tells the miracle of the mass conversions of thousands and thousands of people at the preaching of Jonah. Jim Boyce writes, the miracle of the fish is certainly great, but the miracle of this chapter is by far greater, far greater. It uh, almost echoes the words of the Lord Jesus, who was the great physician and who healed uh, uh, men and women that were sick, the, the lame that couldn't walk, the deaf that couldn't hear, the blind, and even the dead. He raised them. And then he turned to his disciples and he said to them, Greater things than these you will do. He wasn't referring to the fact that uh, they were going to empty hospitals and and even raise uh, the dead in the funeral homes. He was not referring to that. He was referring to the raising of men and women in spiritual life through the preaching of the gospel. That's what that means. You and I, as we proclaim the gospel and we live Christ's before a world that's lost and, and people ask questions for the reason of the hope that lies within us. What is it that makes you tick? You're different. And that you in your life and in your words say, it's Christ alone, the risen one who has saved me and forgiven me and given me a home in heaven who has made all the difference. And as you plant that seed into the hearts of people and as God blesses that and draws them and saves them, that's far greater than, than healing a boo-boo or something even worse, where you'll say they'll be saved forever and ever and ever. Even Lazarus, as great as that was, and it was in John 11, Lord, if he had been here, he wouldn't have died. Well, the Lord was teaching him, I'm the resurrection and the life. And here's Lazarus raised, the poor guy. He's got to go back through the doorway of death again. He died again. That was so much fun. Let's do it again. You ever hit yourself in the hammer? Hit your thumb? I've done that and whacked it a couple of times. You know, that was so much fun. There's something more important, something greater, something more miraculous than things involving the body, and it's spiritual. And that's what Jonah was up to. That's why chapter 3 is the great chapter in in this whole book. It tells of the miracle, the mass conversions of the thousands of people. Well, the greatest revival in history, the, the, the chapter really unfolds in, 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 in really four, I'll call them four steps. There are four steps necessary for revival to take place in your life, the life of your loved ones, people that you know, people in our nation and around the world. There are four simple steps. They're not brand new. Many of you have heard them before. And this story of Jonah delivering God's message 
clearly unfold these four steps that are necessary for revival. This is what people everywhere desperately need. This is what, uh, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, this is what you need. Your loved ones may need this. I'm concerned about my own brothers, whether they're saved. They need this. Maybe some even in your family do. Well, the four steps. The first one is that there must be, first of all, the faithful preaching and or teaching and hearing of God's Word. God's Word has to be delivered. It has to be expressed. It has to be taught in the home. It has to be taught in the pulpit in the Sunday school room, in the youth group room. It's God's Word. It's got to be taught. And with that, with reciprocity, it has to be heard in the hearing of those that, that hear it. And that's what Jonah did. In verses 1 and 2, we find that Jonah is now recommissioned. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed. Well, I'm reminded, we as Americans don't need more money. Boy, it's ad nauseum when you see all the prescriptions for the problems with the financial issues of our day. You kind of get the idea because it rolls all around. Nobody really knows what they're doing. The idea, just keep running the printing press, and that certainly will, will stimulate something. Yeah, and days gone by, it stimulates inflation. Well, what am I? I'm not an economist. What is it when you have 10 economists together? You've got 10 different opinions, or so it seems. America doesn't need more money, printed money, inflated money. What? We need the Word of God. We need God's Word desperately. There's a famine of it in our land, behind our pulpits, in our churches, and in our homes. There's a famine of it. There's an attempt by the evil one through his emissaries to stamp it out everywhere you go, to stamp out God's Word, whether it's the Ten Commandments or any reference to it, and how dare you even speak or pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Can't you be more generic? Can't you say, God, just maybe, maybe we can stomach that, but don't you dare mention the Lord Jesus by name? I'm sorry. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. There's a famine of the Word of God in people's lives today, and Jonah is going to deliver it. Jonah's recommissioned. The Word of the Lord came to him a second time. Now, Nineveh is that great city. Let me give you an idea of the size of it. Jonah's uh, little book calls it that great city three times in chapter 1, 3, and 4. And the city was enormous. Most of you don't perhaps uh, know your ancient history like others, but uh, the, uh, the Assyrians were a mighty, ferocious people. They were a military conquering people. They were not into the arts and the philosophies. Sometimes we think of the Greeks that way. You know, they were into the, the sophistry and the philosophy and the, the, the building with the Corinthian columns. And we think of the Romans, though they were mighty in their military conquests, they were builders. Nobody ever built like the Romans. The Assyrians were not known for any of that. They were known for destroying people. And they were ruthless. They would conquer a people and they'd cut off all their heads and pile them up way high and, and brag about it and pile the bodies and burn them. I, I often thought of them as the, uh, of the Nazis before the Nazis. I don't have a very good opinion of the Nazis, uh, but they were a ruthless people, these Assyrians. I remember being in the, the British uh, Museum in London and and they have quite an extensive uh, 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 display of the Assyrians and the archaeology uh, exploration that has been done there. And it just shows how, how blood-curdling and evil these people were. I think that's part of the reason why Jonah didn't want to go there. He hated those people. He knew the prophecy that one day they would, 
They would carry away the northern tribes. He knew his Bible well enough to know that, but he hated these people that were savage like Nazis. And he, he knew the greatness of God. We'll see that in the next chapter, that God is compassionate and merciful and he's forgiving. And he didn't want any of God's mercy to be given to these, these wicked, evil people. It would be like, I guess, in World War, during World War II with all those terrible concentration camps going on and then having a Jew in New York City who knows about that uh, to go over to uh, Berlin or to some of those death camps and to compassionately treat those folks and, and maybe, maybe it's a redeemed you and point them to Christ and you go like, I want them all wiped out. They're, they're more wicked than anything. And they were. The city was uh, surrounded by two walls. That is the city of Nineveh. It had an inner and an outer wall. The inner wall, 50 feet wide. Imagine that. 50 feet wide. 100 feet tall. Think of those dimensions. Now we uh, use our military weaponry, our tanks, our F-16s, our satellites, all our weaponry for protection. In the ancient world, you're your def- military protection, obviously, were your fortifications. And the inner wall was enormous. And the circumference, eight miles around. The larger walls encompassed the countryside, the farms. It was a smaller wall, but it was enormous. And it held thousands upon thousands of people. Well, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Don't, don't read over that quickly. That's the grace of God, isn't it? It's recommissioned. Oh, the patience of God. Oh, the second time. God will go to great lengths to make us faithful and fruitful children of his. He doesn't give up his designs for our lives. One strike, you're out. I was always glad baseball had three strikes. Sometimes I even need more than that, you know. How about in serving the Lord? Aren't you glad it's not one strike? Hey, Sobolski, sit down, buddy. You're of no use to me anymore. You know, we'd all be obliterated, every one of us. Three strikes? No, no, we need far more than that, don't we? How about 999? I mean... I'll tell you, the, the long-suffering of God overwhelms me when I think about it. When I just look in a mirror in my own life, and I look at the patience of God dealing with his people, a lot of times he comes to a second time. And if he didn't come a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a tenth, and a hundredth, there'd be none of us here, none of us. And that's the reality of life. It shouldn't be, but it is. What grace, what patience. What a God. With God, failure is not final. Jonah, that's it. You're done. You're done. I always love uh, Mark's gospel in the New Testament. It's the, uh, it's the gospel for Americans, really, because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the fast gospel. It's the Reader's Digest version. And uh, he's always racing somewhere quickly. Euthus, the Greek word, immediately, immediately. Uh, NIV has straightway, straightway, or I, maybe that's King Jim. Uh, one thing after another, it's like the USA Today newspaper version of the gospel. Moves you right from one to the other. I almost get breathless. But do you know that John Mark, the very fact that uh, there's a gospel uh, by his name in the Bible, what an honor that is. How'd you like to have your name overseeing one, one book of the Bible? Wouldn't that be something? Do you know he was a great failure, Mark? He quit. He went with Paul on the first missionary journey, and he, uh, he washed out. He washed out. I mean, it caused a great fight between Paul and Barnabas, the great missionaries. So much so that uh, they ended up splitting up. Imagine that. God used it. He divided them, and now there were two sets of teams and, uh, but God wasn't done with, uh, with Mark and restored him and developed him. And Peter spent a lot of time with Mark. His name is John Mark. 
And uh, at the end of uh, Paul's writings, he uh, says this in, in uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy, and bring John Mark, bring him along with you, because he's profitable to me. He washed out, and yet God restored him. How many times do we wash out? Oh, the patience of God. Dare I say daily? Daily. Multiplied many times over. I'm telling you, it's amazing. Our God is, I sometimes hear the God of the second chance. That's not really true. The God of the nth, the nth degree chance. He's just so faithful and long-suffering and he continues to work in our life, even as our memory verse indicated. He brings about the completion of his work in our lives for his glory. And Jonah represents that. Wow, failure is not final. I have a quote here from a man. God is able to make his name a praise among the nations, even on the shoulders of his children's failures and sins. And that's that Romans 5.20. Don't you love that? Romans 5.20. It tells us that where sin abounds, grace uh, superabounds. It's, uh, it's that wonderful verse that teaches us. You can look at that. That's certainly later. Well, number two, Jonah had wasted time, didn't he? You ever think about it? I mean, you get into Jonah chapter 1, verse, look at that. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. And then you just kind of take verse 3 in chapter 1, and you could just kind of cross it all out, go into chapter 2, you don't get the great story of the fish, cross all that out, and now you come to chapter 3, and here it is again, this recommission. I mean, Jonah wasted, it wasn't a lot of time as uh, we think of the chronology of those events from the Bible, but he wasted time. And we do that, don't we? We waste time. When we get off the path, when we say, what's that, Lord? I'm not doing it. We leave the path. God has his ways, and he'll work like a loving father. He, he is a great uh, teacher. And he'll bring us back. He's the great father, the loving disciplinarian. He'll bring us back. He'll continue to use us all the way. But we'll waste the days of our life. Oh, don't waste your days. They're going fast. They are. Jonah wasted days. He went through a storm, got swallowed by it. Look at the depths that he went down, the pain, the suffering. And it affected others. It did. I can't tell you the number of times it's been a privilege of mine to pray with uh, people who God has called back, who have been wayward, taken these trips, circuitous, off the path. God has brought them back. Fortunately, they're not sometimes a week or two like Jonah. Sometimes it's years. Sometimes it's at a dying bedside. Oh, I knew what to do, and I didn't do it. Now my life is just about gone. I disobey God. Don't you do it. You'll be tempted to do it. Some of you may be way off the path and are doing it. Come back. That's the message today. Come back. Don't waste that time. Jonah wasted his time. He could have obeyed and, and skipped most of the content of chapter 1 and 2. But now he's obeying. He obeys, and he begins to make the 550-mile journey from the shore of the Mediterranean to the city, that great city of Nineveh. And in verses 3 and 4, Jonah speaks God's message. Look at it, verse 3 and 4. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. And on the first day, Jonah started into the city, and he proclaimed, here's his message now, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. 
will be destroyed. In English, it's only eight words. In Hebrew, it's only five words. Whether this is the sum total of his message, we don't know, or whether this is just the summary of it. But Jonah obeys. He delivers the word that God gave him. That's what he said. Proclaim the message I give to you. And he does just that. The message is simple. It's direct. It's clear. They knew what he was talking about. It was what we need in our land today. Too many, too many men standing in the pulpits of our churches do not preach God's message. They think of it somehow unsophisticated or somehow uh, offensive. And there's a lot of tickling of the ears and the tickling of the hearts and, and all of that. There is not the thundering forth of preaching the whole counsel of God. People are said, well, people can't take that today. People won't come to that. You've got to give them signs and wonders. You've got to make them feel good. You've got to tickle their ears. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in the sight of his own death as he closed 2 Timothy. Preach the word. Be instant. Be instant. In season and out. In other words, there's a time when it's popular to do it, and there's a time when it's not so. It doesn't matter. You be faithful. It's not your message anyway. It's mine. Be faithful. Preach the word. Give the message that I have given. You don't need to add to it or take away. Just give your whole life doing that. Would to God that more churches would stand that way. Perhaps we wouldn't be in quite the problem that we are as a country now. In our homes and in our families, if the word of God were clearly taught from dads and moms to children, husband and wives. We'd have better homes and godly places. Jonah speaks God's message. It's simple. I mean, it's a simple message. It's not advanced physics. It's, uh, it's not calculus and all of that. It's, it's the message, and, and, God's, and, and the people understood it. It was a normal day for them. How about the ladies at the market? They woke up and they thought of their life. They're down selling their goods in the market, maybe doing the, the linens and the wash and all that little thinking that God was going to intercept in their life through a message and save them that very day. You see, they looked at their life wrongly. They misinterpreted their life as so many people do. They need to hear from heaven. They need God's message. They need his word. We do. And we do often. People don't get enough of God's word. One of the great reasons why I'd like more of you to listen to Christian radio as you drive around and through the day, and not the only thing on there, but there are some great, great teachers and, and pastors preaching away. I need that. It, it warms my heart. It tunes my heart to sing His praise. It reminds me of truth. It helps me and helps you. We need to be immersed in the Word of God daily, all week long. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. That's our dilemma. That's our problem. Jonah delivers the Word. And the light, God's light, now floods their guilty, dark souls. And that's what we need today. It is, uh, at first, you'll notice the message uh, is uh, a message of coming judgment. That's the gospel. Now, the, the word gospel, evangelium, the Greek word, means uh, good news. Good news. And we often say at football times, better news than announcing that the Steelers won the Super Bowl. And some of you are still enjoying that. But there's even greater news than that. It's the news that God welcomes lost, sinful men and women and saves and has a home in heaven, giving you a mission to do here and gives you the righteousness that makes you acceptable. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's a gift. It's a gift. You cannot earn it. It's good news. But the good news begins with bad news. It's what we have done. The good news is what God has done. He's done it all. The bad news is what we have done. We've been born as sinners, and in due time we sin. 
we rebel and we wander away. And because of that, uh, we're under judgment. The good news always begins with the bad news. And here Jonah is preaching God's message. It's judgment. It's a message of doom. Forty days, the text says, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's not a little pep talk. A lot of pulpits have little pep talks. They're little 15-minute sermonettes, you know. I can hardly get started in 15 minutes. People say, you know, Americans don't have the, uh, the attention span. You know, we need a commercial every five minutes. And there's a sense where we have been warped into that sort of non-thinking zone, but people can develop that as God works in hearts and lives through the hearing of his message. And sometimes it takes time to unfold it so that the, the light of the Word of God pierces our hearts. Jonah is doing just that. It's not a pep talk, not a halftime talk. I used to hear those. It's not any of that. It's not a felt need. Well, I'm going to ask people what they feel they need, and I'll give it to them. That's not it either. That's not it at grace. It isn't. You don't do that when you go to the doctor. We're glad Larry's feeling better. You know, after he gets married, he gets sick. That's not fair. But you don't go to the doctor and say, Doctor, I need this. He may send you to a different doctor. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to give you what his training has diagnosed, and he will, he will do what he needs to do. Not the felt need, not the pep talk, not the feel good. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I heard uh, uh, the pastor down in a huge church down in Houston. He was interviewed. I can't hardly watch him much. But he was interviewed, and they asked him on this, uh, uh, it was a national news network, he was coming out with a book, and they said, well, uh, is it, do, do you, do you uh, believe that people that do not believe in Jesus uh, are not saved and will go to hell? I thought, what a wonderful question. What a great opportunity. What a shame. You know what he said? He said, well, I'd rather be known for what I'm for than what I'm against. I'm for the fact that God loves you. And I about threw up in the living room, and I turned the thing off. What a shame. Listen, people need to know the bad news first. I remember the first time I knew I was a sinner and lost even as a young boy. I needed to know that. The wages of sin is death. Listen, that's the most loving thing you can tell people. It is. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. People's lives are like houses that are burning down. They're going to perish. Perish. And you and I may live in the neighborhood, right? And their house is on fire. And what do you do? You run. What's a loving thing to do? You don't give them a little pep talk. You don't help them feel better. You go in there and yell, fire, get out of here, you're going to be dead. You can grab the kids and run them out the front door, right? That's the most loving. Don't say that. I don't want to hear that. That hurts me. I like my house. It's burning down. That's the most loving thing you can do for people is tell them the truth. It's God's message. And in their heart of heart, they know it's true. Look, we need to speak to, God, to others about God's law. That's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. You can't keep it in and of yourself. The Ten Commandments bring us to Christ. I can't do it. I can't. They bring us to Christ. The law just condemns us. We're lost. It shows us as lawbreakers. People need to know the word. They need to know the law, guilt, and the coming judgment. They do. Well, our God-given task is simply and directly to teach God's word and truth to those who are nearest today. Well, there must, first of all, as Jonah illustrates, be the faithful preaching, teaching, and hearing the word of God. The people of Nineveh heard the message, and they were wonderfully saved. They heard it. 
Some of you have read uh, Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher in London in the 1800s. You've read his autobiography. I, I love to read that uh, when he, he recounts when he was saved. He was a young boy, and for some reason he didn't go to his normal church, and he went to a little primitive Methodist church. He said he walked in the door, and there was almost nobody there, and the pastor wasn't even there, but there was a, a layman who had the pulpit duties that day, and uh, as I recall, the man he, and, and Spurgeon's uh, estimation was not well-educated, uh, was not well-biblically literate, uh, and his message was simply, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And he kept saying, look to Jesus with redundancy. Look, look, look. And he's in Spurgeon's own word because the man delivered the essence of the gospel there and that simple message, God anointed it and opened my heart and saved me because I was lost and under sin and judgment. And God saved me. I heard it, he said, because it was delivered even by an unsophisticated layman that hardly knew much, but he knew that much. And he delivered the message. And that's what Jonah did. Jonah delivered God's word. And so should we. There's a second step, quickly. Number In verse 5a, there must be the believing of God. Not only the delivering of God's word by teaching and preaching, hearing of it, but second, it must be believed. I love this verse in verse 5a. The Ninevites believe God. Now, wait a minute. Jonah's out there preaching. Forty days, and judgment's going to fall. Forty days, judgment. That's the voice of a man, isn't it? That's the voice of a man. That's God's prophet. Disobedient, restored, walking through the city. What a sight. And if I'm right, the hydrochloric acid burned his skin. Maybe his hair was white. Who knows? Who knows? And they hear his voice, and they heard in his words... They heard the voice of God. They believed God. Jonah spoke, but they heard God's voice in his words. It's not enough for us merely to hear God's message. We must respond to it by believing it. We must believe it with saving faith. In our 24-hour, new-saturated day, the good news of the gospel is just not another feature. Oh, that's interesting. Next on our news. Oh, that's one after the other. after. No, it's the great news. It's not simply to be heard. It's to be received, to believed, and as the Ninevites did. God's word will always cause a response and accomplish his purpose. God's word is powerful. It is the powerful word of the Lord. All you have to do is speak it or write it or express it and get out of the way, and the word will have its effect. God said that his word will never return void. It will accomplish all the things that he desires to do. It's his word. And it couldn't be any more pronounced in the Bible than right here. This guy didn't even want to see these people saved. He didn't even want to go there. And we'll see his afterglow and next time when we look at chapter 4. It was, believe me, it wasn't his pleasing personality. Oh, he's just such a wonderful guy. We just wanted to accept what he said. I don't think so. It wasn't because he was doing magic tricks or signs and wonders. Uh-uh. He just delivered the message truly, simply, directly, and plainly with conviction to the people that God had sent him, and he stepped out of the way, and God's word is mighty, accomplishing his purpose, to the saving, to the utter amazement of all the believers who have ever read this account, the generations that followed. The whole city, the whole city believed. It's never been done before. That's why it's called the greatest revival in human history, the power of the Word of God when it's spoken with the holy unction of the Holy Spirit. It is. Look, Hebrews 4.12, the 
we have that, Jen, up on our screen. Look at what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joint marrow. It judges the thoughts and, and attitudes of the heart. It's the word of God. It's powerful, powerful, more powerful than a young boy's amazement with a with a Corvette 454 in some of those uh, muscle cars of days gone by. A Saturn V rocket, the roar of that uh, launched the Apollo on their you know, uh, journey to the moon. More powerful than that. The, you know, the atomic weaponry and bombs, the power of the Word of God. Sinclair Ferguson, my instructor at Westminster years ago, wrote these uh, words when he said, when when I was a young boy, I had heard the gospel, and uh, I had not been saved. And uh, as chance had it, and there's no such thing as chance, I was a, as a young boy walking down the sidewalk there in Scotland <clears throat> one evening, and uh, there was a man that approached me, a man I'd never seen before, a man in an overcoat with a hat, and he looked down at me, and uh, I don't know if he was eight or nine or ten years old, and he said to me, Son, are you saved? He didn't know that at that moment it was like a knife pierced my soul. He did not know that was my heart's greatest desire to be right with the Lord and to be saved. It was as if that were the very voice of God penetrated my heart through his simple words that you must be saved. And that night I knelt by my bed and cried out to God and was wonderfully saved. That great servant of our day, who has been such a blessing to so many people, saved through the simple delivery of the word, and the word resonated in his heart, it created life, and he believed it. It's not enough that we simply announce the word, the first step, or it be heard. It must be believed, as it was in my life, and it ought to have been in many of your lives, and it should be if you're not saved. God's Word is powerful. It's powerful. It's powerful. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. Hearing. Hearing. That's how we believe. Well, the, the Word must be published, it must be heard, Second step, it must be believed upon. Verses 5b to 9, we see the third step. There must be action taken by those that would believe the word if it's to be true. It gives evidence of, of, of true conversion. When God works, lives can never remain the same. Never. For such lives where God is work bring forth the fruits of repentance. John said that. John the baptizer Bring forth the fruits that give evidence of a true change in your heart. Here in, in our text, we'll get 5b. They declare, that is, the Ninevites declared a fast. And all of them, notice all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. It's a way of humbling themselves. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, and we even have it here, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. They prayed. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. You see, the third step in revival is there must be action. Not enough to say, well, I believe it. Like I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States. I believe that Abraham Lincoln was the great... That's not what we're talking about. That's not saving faith. Saving faith uh, has feet to it. There's life changes that take place. There are the works that give evidence, the fruit of repentance. It's called by a number of things in scriptures. And the people of Nineveh evidence that in their fasting, their humiliation, 
their praying. It included all people, even the kings, up to the king. Hundreds of thousands of people. We'll see next week uh, by the, the Lord's confronting Jonah at the end just how many hundreds of thousands of people in this great metropolitan area were swept in the glory. We, we will meet people in heaven uh, from Nineveh. If you're saved, you will. Uh, people will be saved from every tongue and nation and kindred of the world through all this span. And there will be Ninevites there. In fact, Jesus told us that the Ninevites will stand up and judge the people of his day. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They will be there. They're, they were redeemed. Wow. Well, such a contrition, number two, is usually a good sign. There's no pride here. To put on sackcloth sounds odd to us in our day. It means to take off your fine linens and your silk and your, your nice wools and, and to put on burlap bags. It's an outward sign of inward contrition and humility as, uh, as you would pray and fast. You would deny yourself physical food and, and these for a time, calling out to God, recognizing that you are a sinner lost and indeed worthy of judgment. What a scene at Nineveh. What a scene. They never anticipated it. Uh, God visited them in a very unusual, in a very unplanned way. It wasn't in any of their daytimers. It wasn't on their daily log of their computer when they punched it in. What am I doing today? Oh, sackcloth and ashes and praying. God, God interrupted their schedules and visited them with his message, and they heard it, they believed it, and it changed their lives. They were wonderfully, wonderfully saved. And the fruit of it was evident. Never before was there such a turning to God. Through my short life, I've had the joy of living in the uh, Scranton Valley, the Wyoming Valley, for eight years, the greater Quark Summit up there and all that. And, uh, and living up there, they still tell the stories of the great revival and the great movement of God in the valley when Billy Sunday came there. That Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player, was a vile guy, and God wonderfully saved him early 1900s. And his preaching was a bit bizarre. He'd go up and conduct all these uh, tent meetings and move around the country and preach the gospel. It was quite a show. He'd be up there smashing chairs and running back and forth and, and all, the, all of that. But in the midst of that, he was uneducated insofar as theology and ministry. All he knew was he was once lost but saved, and God gave him the forefront of that ministry, and he went all over the country preaching the gospel, and many people were saved. And they still talk about that up in the Wyoming Valley there, because after he had visited there, and there were so many that were saved, that the bars were completely closed. Hard to imagine in Scranton today that that's the case. So many Irish up there and others that drink and drink and drink and drink. I guess if you worked in the mines, it would drive you to drink, and many of them did. And uh, they lived that life. And, and the houses of prostitution, the bars were shut, the prostitution whorehouses closed. Men actually went home and were husbands and fathers to their wives and children. And there was a massive turning around. Churches were begun after they left. A small little sample of what God did even in our own state. Of what God did there in Nineveh through the preaching of God's servant Jonah. Lives were dramatically changed as they gave evidence of salvation. Well, it's always that way, isn't it? True faith, saving faith, always produces appropriate works. That's what James 2 tells us. We have James 2, you remember that? In James 2... Uh, we, we have it up on our screen. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? In the same way, faith by itself is not, if not accompanied by action, by works, is dead. You see, it's always that way. Saving faith produces a change. And true faith gives uh, evidence of itself in the life of a man or woman, boy or girl, who is saved. 
For faith without works is dead. That's what James tells us. Works are the indicator of genuine faith. Faith alone saves. I'm fond of repeating this, but a faith that is alone does not save. The faith of the Ninevites was not alone. It gave evidence of genuine movement of God, life, and change in their life. And so should it be in your life and in mine. The, uh, the faith that does not is a worthless faith. And your life should be filled with such evidence. Saving faith, believing faith, acting upon what we know is true. That's the mark of God's work in your life and in mine. Well, in Niagara County is the county I grew up in, New York, and it's, of course, Niagara Falls. Most of you are aware of that. Evidence of a, of a Blondin, and many of you know that great acrobatist and tightrope walker. And you can go there and see some of the great murals when he strung the, the guy wire across and actually walked across the falls. And they talk about him up there. You can go on the Canadian side and hear his story. There's some in, in the uh, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum and see a replica and all that. The story's up there in a place that was only 8 or 10 miles from my home where I grew up. And the story is told one day when Blondin, and that wasn't his real name, but he was very fair, this, I believe, Frenchman. They called him Blondin. He had the, the type the, uh, the type rope up and went across it. He went across a second time. He even ate an egg omelet standing out in the middle of it. And then he took a, a wheelbarrow across. Did it a couple of times. Even took his own manager. The guy jumped in the barrel and he took him all the way across. Now that's a, that's a, that, that's a beautiful view of the falls if you can take it. <laughs> At that point, he said to uh, the crowd, they were all cheering him on and all the rest, and he said, uh, he looked down at a man, he said, do you believe I could carry you across? And the man said, absolutely, of course. And he said, well, go ahead, get in. And the man said, not on your life. <laughs> and that's an illustration of someone says, I believe, but doesn't act upon it. I believe, but it has no fruit, no evidence. Let that not be you. That wasn't the Ninevites. They heard the message, and they didn't say, well, that's interesting. We'll tuck that away and add that in with the rest of the news with the Nineveh today. No. It changed them. It's right well it should all of us. And all that God gives us to deal with and to be a blessing to and to share the wonderful words of life. There must be action. Well, the word must be published, must be heard, must be believed upon, there must be evidence of true conversion. And finally, verse 10, the last step. And this is the great verse of the whole Bible. This is it. It's not that the, the whale swallowed Jonah or the great fish or he spit on. None of that. That's not the great verse. That's really incidental to this whole thing. Verse 10 is the great verse of the whole book. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. And he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. That is a great verse. And that is the verse that you can write under my life or over my life. That God relented through Christ the Lord, his own son, who he paid the only price for all of our sin. The, the Ninevites looking forward to the cross and in my life and in yours looking back at it. And God relented and had compassion. He's merciful. There must be a turning away, verse 10, step 4. There must be a turning away of specific sins. Repentance means the change of mind, metanoia, a change in one's thinking. You were once headed in one direction and turned, and turned around 180 degrees. 180 degrees. The last time I ever drove to Florida, uh, we piled into the minivan, headed down. We we're going to see Pop and Mom and, and Debbie. And we were going to drive all night. So we left, uh, we left at, uh, I don't know, 11 o'clock, and we could get to Fort Myers 24 hours. I don't even think about that anymore. It sounds horrible to me. So I drove, 
I drove all night down uh, 95, and uh, everyone was sleeping, and it came around uh, 9 in the morning, and I was sort of coffeeed out and shaking, and I just wanted to lay down for an hour or two in the back of the minivan. And lo and behold, and Faithy, Faithy, she said, I'll drive, I'll drive. So I said, okay. So, uh, so we get down there uh, so far on the interstate, and I'm in the back, and I was out. And uh, I must have been out for 45 minutes to an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And all of a sudden, I, you, kinda, you, know, you can kind of hear when you're sort of under, but you can hear some conversation. And I, he- I heard Sarah talking to, to Faith saying, well, there's a sign. We're not too far from, from uh, Greenville, South Carolina. I woke me right up. Woke me right up. Uh, I said, Greenville, we're, you're go- we're going the wrong way. We went the wrong... Oh, I, was, I wasn't... Sh- no, don't tell her. Don't ever tell her I said this. But I said, honey, we... Oh, she said, I thought... Oh, we're, no, we're going... I, oh. oh, and I love rework so much. Don't you love rework? I said, I'll, I'll drive. And I got in the car. <laughs> Turned, next hour and a half, we got to see the same scenery. I was sleeping first time. But the second time, and I, I ended up driving all the way home. Well, 100 down to Florida at, at that point. And home, too. I <laughs> we were going 180 degrees the wrong way. We had to do a UB, right? That's a good way to think about repentance. It's a 180 degrees turnaround. You're headed in one direction, and God gets a hold of your life, redeems you, saves you, confession, repentance, and there's a wholesale turning around. And that's what they did. These violent, wicked, evil Nazis before the Nazis, if you will. And the text says, look at verse 8. Let them give up their evil ways, and they were evil, and their violence. There's the specific sins. They were wicked. They were violent. They were violent like, I could tell you, but you almost get nauseated reading some of the old histories on that. And they turned and they gave it up. Turned from their wicked ways. We too must turn from our specific sins. They turn from their wicked ways. It's, it's enumerated. Turn from specific sins. Don't be vague about it. Don't be general. We say don't pray that way about the missionaries. God bless all the missionaries everywhere. I guess that's better than not praying for them at all, but it's better to be specific. We talk when we, about our blessings, right? Name them one by one, and it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. We love that, and we enjoy that, and we, we say, doesn't that encourage us? Well, the same thing is true when we repent. We ought to repent specifically. Lord, I have been an idolater. Lord, I have been involved with uh, gross selfishness, or I've been lazy. I've been a materialistic person thinking that joy and deep satisfaction we found in things. It never is. Lord, forgive me for that. I've been utterly self-centered. I've been hard-hearted to lost people. I've been, I've been involved with sexual indulgence and perversion, a big sin of our day, splashed up everywhere. Forgive me of that. Name them one by one and turn from them one by one as the Ninevites did, and God bless that. What a, what a great thing. This uh, see, this greatest verse in the book, God saw. God saw. He knew it was coming. He wouldn't let his prophet not deliver the goods, and then God's Spirit worked in the hearts and lives to bring some of these people all the way to heaven through the coming finished work of Jesus on his cross. Wow, God saw and did not bring upon them the destruction that they deserved. For us to be blessed by God, to come to, to come to really know Him, we must turn from our sin, whatever they might be. It must be a total reversal in our thinking. Every, every single one of them. Well, what can we say by way of lessons for life in this, the greatest revival in history, particularly that wonderful chapter 3, verse 10, that God relented and had compassion on these evil people just like us. What can we say? Number one, be encouraged. Be encouraged, first of all, that failure with God is not final. Aren't you glad for that? Boy, I am. Man, man, 
with exams, boy, we may, we may bomb it, right? We may bomb it in obedience as well. It's not final. God is, you're off my team. You're, you're out. Hit the showers. Don't suit up again. God is the God of the 900th and 99th chance, and that's hyperbole. It's endless. Be encouraged. That ought to encourage us today. Say, what did you... I'm encouraged. The grace of God came to Jonah a second time, you know. And I've needed so many second times in my own life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you didn't stop. Isn't that great? Come back to the path and do His will. Number two, don't waste time. Don't waste time. Do you recognize how fast it's going? The sands of time going, going, and almost gone. They are. Dobson said, look at the passage and the swiftness of it passing in the life of your own family. You know, you, if you're married and in time, if God should give you children, then as they grow and they grow so fast. I remember someone saying, it's when your kids start school, get ready. It's like, whoa, then it really goes. And then you go, yeah, I've lived long enough to find out that that's pretty true. Where did they go all those years? And uh, we keep wanting the next and the next and the next, and, the, and pretty soon they're gone. And we go like, wow, where'd that go? And then you're married. If, you're, if you are married, you're married for some years, or you've been out of high school or college. You look and go like, well, I can't believe it's that reunion number. Uh, that the kids urging I've got on Facebook and don't really know what I'm doing much with it, but uh, um, there's a couple from my high school that have uh, put their picture up there and their names, and I go, it was a huge class. We had about 900 in my class, and if they didn't play sports or something, I probably didn't know them too much. But I look at it, I go, whoa, time has not been kind there, you know. (laughs) Oh, you know. And it's like John Strong, my mentor, who's now in heaven, pastor retired when I first began. He said, you know, life is so funny. One day you find yourself hanging around with a bunch of old guys. He says, I don't know how that happens. He says, at one point, you're out playing ball, running, throwing, going to school. Next thing, you're hanging around with, you know, guys, their bodies don't work anymore. And they smell and everything else. It's just kind of, it's just, (laughs) don't miss it. It's passing. It's passing. Jonah wasted. Don't waste time. Use every day, every minute for his glory. Live for me to live as Christ. Do that. You have to daily remind yourself of that. Don't waste time. Disobedience wastes the days of your life. Jonah had wasted days. And you don't get them back at the end. Do you ever notice that? Faith is away these 11 days. And I said, you know, honey, uh, you're away and you need to be down there helping but we don't get this tacked on at the end, you know? Like I'm falling over with a heart attack. Lord, remember those 11 days with, I missed that. Can I have those, you know? <laughs> Do a little Hezekiah thing, you know? <laughs> you don't get it. You don't. Don't waste your days. Live them to the fullest. Live them for Christ. Number three, we are to embrace God's Word and give it out to others. Embrace it. Give it out. It's not your flaming personality. We know that. It isn't anything else. It's God's Word. That's what people need. They need the Word. People need the Lord, and they get the Lord through the hearing of the Word. Faith comes by hearing. In your life, in your family, we as a church in our area, around the world, through our missions, our prayer, we need to publish the Word. It's the Word that's all important. Embrace it. Give it out. Make it as clear as you can. When you're talking to people about their need of Christ, don't bring in Noah's Ark and everything else. Get rid of a lot of that clutter. Learn to be able to streamline it. People are lost. They need the Word. And then just pray for them. Give them Word. Live it. And then pray for them. The Word is powerful. It's powerful. That's number four. Remember, God's power is bound up in His Word. Give it out. 
then step aside and let God work. Let God work. Pray. Pray God's Word. I pray every week God's Word in every one of your hearts. I do. Part of my ministry, and I take that seriously. I pray that God would breathe life in the, this speaker's feeble, fumbling words, that hearts would be open, that the Word would be received, and it would forever make a difference in your lives, in the lives of people around us. The power is not in this guy it's not in anything else. It's in this Word, and it's the Spirit of God that rips our heart open and plants it deeply and changes us forever. It's the Word. Number five and last, people know that danger is coming. It's coming. We saw it in the economy, right? Danger. What's going to happen? The banks are going to collapse. What's going to happen to Citibank? What's going to happen to Bank of uh, what is it, Bank of America? What, what, what's going to happen? Who knows? God knows. Some boneheaded decisions that were made by people that should never have been made. Danger in the financial area. There's a far more serious danger, and it's forever. Remember Pilgrim's Progress, guys? We studied that a number of years ago. Remember the evangelists? Flee the wrath that is to come. There was wrath, danger, danger. Danger. We need, to, we need to, to announce that. And if you're here without Christ, there's danger. You may not suspect it or see it, like the Ninevites the day before uh, Jonah visited and God intruded into their life with his wonderful word and saved them. Maybe you need saving. Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Well, the greatest revival in history, wouldn't it be great if God would unleash his spirit and through his word, through his people, to do that today? Wouldn't that be great? I pray for that in our country, that, that there would be revival and a turning back to the things of the Lord like, like we have never seen. And maybe it's going to take even greater humbling of, of our people. There's such pride. We, there's such an entitlement in our country, like somehow we, we deserve the best or we're the smartest or the hardest working. None of that is true. We're certainly not the smartest. Have you ever talked to people? And we're certainly not the hardest working people. I see people hanging around coffee shops all the time. Does that mean I'm there all the time? Uh-oh. We're not the hardest working. There was a generation that worked far harder. There's some of the other countries in Asia and all that worked to the bone. We're not the hardest working. We're not entitled to this. And uh, perhaps a great humbling. And maybe the hearts of people around us and our families in our country, in Washington and Harrisburg, and other, will be open to the wonderful message that begins with judgment is going to fall. There's danger. Look unto Jesus and be saved. And then we'll begin to experience a revival like we've never seen. Oh, I pray to that end. Well, let it begin in your heart first and in mine, shall we? Let's do that.